0: And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, January 24, 2019. be checking in with the celebrity seeker driven purpose driven set today Preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward. That's what doctrine is, by the way. Uh, for consumption by the average evangelicals, far from biblical, far from what god 's word says, and there 's a whole lot of ear scratching and ear tickling going on case in point and uh, and, and this is uh, you know kind of a, a, an overarching thing we 're going to be looking at in today 's episode of Fighting for the Faith, The preaching of real Christian sanctification, Christian sanctification of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, which flows then from the fact that we are repentant. Forgiven sinners, uh, Christian sanctification, uh, focusing in on you know on keeping God's commands, the law of perfect freedom. This is the way we talk about God's law for a Christian. Uh, the law convicts us of our sin, but it also shows us what a good work is. Uh, that this preaching is missing in so much of evangelicalism today, especially among the um, the 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 pretty celebrity. Uh, seeker-driven churches yeah think of it this way back in the day uh you know when i started uh fighting for the faith and so this is over 10 years ago now uh back in the in in the day you know the the celebrity pastors in the seeker-driven movement would, would include bill hybels and rick warren Uh, bill hybels uh you know <clears throat> has now been you know stepped down shall we say um after his retirement it's come out that um uh, that there were particular moral failings on his part, so he's you know he 's yesterday 's big news. Rick Warren is a little long in the tooth and doesn 't do a lot of uh, the same public things that he 's done. He works a lot more behind the scenes uh, within the purpose driven movement, um, although he 's still a force to be reckoned with, but uh, in our day we 've seen you know in, you know ten years later. The rise of celebrity pastors. I would put uh, celebrity pastors like Carl Lentz. Uh, we're going to talk about Judah Smith, Chad Veach. Uh, you can talk about Rich Wilkerson. All of them have a particular appeal uh, to young millennials, but not just uh, young millennials. But uh, you'll note that they also get the attention of people who are, you know, true Hollywood celebrities, uh, you know, of one type or another and uh, And so what's fascinating though, is that when you kind of scratch the surface and listen to the messages that they're preaching it it isn't a, a wonder at all as to why this would be appealing to celebrities and and that's really what the problem is is that these men and their wives twist scripture very badly and i and I mean that just horribly uh in such a way that we're we're um we're not really being confronted with our sin. And our need to repent and be and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Christian sanctification has morphed into uh, the uh, the you know the ability to somehow hear the uh, whisper of the voice of God and then make a decision in faith to step out and and to uh, uh, to do the thing that God's calling you to do, which will probably scare you because it's so big because you're so important, you know. And um, and then applying yourself to your purpose. Yeah, this is not what the uh, scriptures teach at all. So uh, we're going to take a look at three things on this episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start with Chelsea Smith. Chelsea Smith is the wife of Judah Smith, and we're going to listen to her as she twists uh, Ezekiel 37, Valley of the Dry Bones, but we're only going to get one verse out of context from that. And uh, she's going to meld it then with uh, the Gospel of John from the message paraphrase, And she's going to make some statements that are just jaw-droppingly bad. We'll take a break after that, and then we'll check in with Chad Veach of uh, Zoe Church. And uh, he's going to uh, twist the story of the walls of Jericho. Yeah, There is a particular thing that the walls of Jericho are pointing to, and it's not about obstacles that are keeping you from your purpose, like far from it. And then to round out this episode of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to head down to Voo Church as we listen to Rich Wilkerson Jr. um, mangle uh, the story of Esther from the book of Esther, and no joke, he's going to turn it into uh, a time management thing that you've got to somehow (laughs) apply yourself to so that you can hear the voice of God, because God won't talk to you until you get your time management thing worked out, so that you can figure out your passion, which will then lead to your purpose and and a despising of the actual good works that God has called us to all along the way. So you'll note that uh, if you uh, keep track of the fact that uh, episodes of Fighting for the Faith have a unified theme and uh, something that we're working from, this one's not too hard to figure out. All right, let's get to it. And since Chelsea Smith is neither a vision casting leader, a pastor, and this isn't technically a sermon, here's the music that I have chosen for her. All right, so uh, we're heading over to a church home, and uh, Chelsea Smith, the wife of Judah Smith, and uh, I'll just kind of let her explain what it is that we're listening to here. Here we go.
1: Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, as we have been um, looking at through this time that we have shared together. Ezekiel 37 is awesome, and I'm just going to read a few of the verses, and then we'll show some pictures and tell some stories. I'm going to talk about Viagra. So random. I'm like, Judah, can I talk about Viagra in church? She's like, yeah, it's a group of ladies. You can totally get away with it. Probably not in the way you think I'm going to talk about it, but it'll be fun. Okay. Okay, this is going to be the weirdest ladies' night ever because our passage, first of all, is talking about a valley of dry bones, and mm-hmm. then we're going to talk about armies and fighting. and Vi-
0: Now, we recently did this. We showed this with Paula White that the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel thirty-seven, it gives us the interpretation of the vision itself, and it's a picture of the resurrection. That's what's going on. So, what she's going to do with this, I, I, I don't know. It can't be good either way. But she's, she said we were going to look at some verses, and by the way, this is a way in which you can twist scripture now it doesn't always happen that when you're quoting verses you're twisting god's word but oftentimes that can be the case this is called proof texting when you're ignoring the context of the verses in question in order to just kind of roll up your own theology and create your own theology so uh, yeah that's a, that can be a very um bad way of approaching the bible
1: viagra so Welcome to she, which is church home style girls. Like you you get, we do the makeup tips. We can do panels and we can do war and Viagra. So Chelsea, just get to the Bible. Okay. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 37, starting here in verse 10, he says this. So I prophesied as he commanded to me and the breath came into them and they.
0: So Valley of the dry bones, you're going to start at verse 10. Why? It's a narrative. There's something going on there. Why don't you start at verse 1? Keep reading until God interprets the vision itself. So notice we're jumping in to the middle, not even the middle of is the valley of the dry bones vision. We're like at the very end of it. This is no way to teach scripture.
1: They lived and stood up on their feet an exceedingly great army. And I also want to read one other verse from you in the book of John, chapter 1, and this is from the message translation.
0: So John, chapter 1, message translation. The message is a paraphrase, and the opening words of the word message are M-E-S-S, mess. Stay away from it. You should never, if you are a Bible teacher, be preaching or teaching from the message paraphrase. I can't even recommend it for devotional studies. That's how far off it is.
1: It's on the screen back here. It's way too small for my almost almost 40-year-old eyes to read. So I'm going to turn around. How's the back of my hair look? Oh, I kind of missed a spot. Oh, well. Okay. I didn't think we'd actually see the back. I never... You know you're supposed to take a mirror and look at the back of your head. I never do it. Okay. But now you all get to see.
0: Yeah, I, I never do it either. Yeah, Never thought of it.
1: John chapter 12. This is a prophecy. This is about Jesus coming, saying that when he comes, it said, But whoever did want him, who believed that he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves.
0: <laughs> what on earth is this? All right. I have to open. Bible here. Um, Let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 1, shall we? John chapter 1, and she was what, 9 through 13? Let's take a look at a good translation. We'll be working from the ESV, which is a fantastic modern translation. It has its own faults, but overall it's very faithful to what the original languages say. And mean, and here's what it says John 1 9. Now, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is talking about Christ, the Word of God, made flesh. He was in the world, though the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But born of God. And you can say that this has something to do with the concept of being born anew, born again, because we are born dead in trespasses and sins as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. It's counted against us. So Ephesians chapter uh, 2 is a great place to go there when it comes to noting our. Uh, our Our problem as humanity, it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires and the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, so she 's reading from the message paraphrase i 'm not sure what Ezekiel has to do with anything here. Um, But Ezekiel 37 verse 10 is something that she rolled up. And then I want to go back to John 1 uh, just to kind of make the point that uh, it's talking about us being born of God. And Eugene Peterson, for whatever reason in his message uh, paraphrase, decided that it's best to translate that as our true selves.
2: <clears throat>
0: yeah, this sounds like the kind of stuff that would scratch itching ears, make me feel really great about myself in an unhealthy kind of demonic satanic way let me back this up just a little bit
1: john chapter 12 this is a prophecy this is about jesus coming saying that when he comes it said but whoever did want him who believed that he was who he claimed and would do what he said he
0: (laughs) and do what he said eugene just like added stuff to the text
1: made to be their true selves they 're child of god 's selves, and these are the god begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten and I love that phrase that Jesus came to show us our true selves
0: yeah, um, this almost sounds like new age yeah, yeah, philosophy rather than biblical doctrine, biblical theology
1: and our whole goal tonight as we spend the next as I spend the next twenty twenty five minutes up here is that we want to talk about growing and discovering who our true selves really are. And I believe who our true selves are is women who have, if you've decided to follow Jesus, great. If not, no pressure, but you get to glimpse into who the Bible says we are and you can be once you decide to follow Jesus. Who we are is the God begotten, our true selves. God has raised us up to be part of this huge army that Ezekiel 37 talks about.
0: Ezekiel 37 is a ab- <laughs> is about the resurrection from the dead when God calls people out of their graves. Yeah, you know, let me show you. I know we did this recently with Paula White, but like I said in the Paula White segment, th- that <laughs> this is a common text to mis- misinterpret. It's like on purpose. And so, let me go to uh the the well, the exam the explanation from God as to what the bones are all about so uh, ezekiel 37:11 so then he that's yahweh said to me son of man these bones are the whole house of israel behold they are bone these bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off these are the what they're saying so therefore prophesy and say to them thus says yahweh elohim Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Yeah, this this like it's pointed out with Paul the White, this text is about the resurrection. So I'm not sure what Chelsea Smith is doing here by pulling Ezekiel 37.10 out of context and applying it to some... Well, women's army. Yeah, you're going to see that here.
1: Can you just picture us, this awesome army of women who are fighting and doing what God has called us to do? If you can't imagine it, Marvel has really helped us imagine.
0: (laughs) Who knew? Uh, Ezekiel 37 is about God raising up uh, an army of Amazonian women.
1: Oh, we have awesome pictures no, of um.
0: No. Oh, no. How
1: awesome are those ladies? Like
0: <laughs> neither depiction from the Marvel comic world have anything to do with Ezekiel thirty-seven. So apparently it's uh, it's an all-women army there that uh, God raised from the grave. Forget the fact that you know back in the day when Israel. Uh, was a thoroughgoing theocracy, and in Ezekiel was you know receiving the prophecies of the Lord that, um, that only men served in the army. Forget that, yeah.
1: Like you have you know these two movies with with women who are protecting these worlds that are hidden from the rest of the world, but they have all the resources to protect the world. I'm like, ah, yes, we can be that. And when I am 50, I will look like that in those kinds of thigh highs. So we have lots of inspiration here here tonight. Let's pray.
0: Yeah, you know, with a setup like that, there's pretty much no way to uh, land that plane without crashing it. (sighs) Yeah, see, oftentimes Bible twisting, you know, the whole setup sets the, uh, the, the message up to fail from its very beginning. And uh, that's what we got going on with Chelsea Smith here. Uh she's <laughs> you got to discover our true selves and wouldn't you know it our true self is an army of amazonian women that God has raised up. Yeah. Nope, no way to uh to fix that. It's broken beyond all repair. And uh and so that's not what this text is about. But hey, you know, I'm a glutton for punishment. Why don't we Listen a little further and see where this goes.
1: We need it. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And God, we do pray that you, we do thank you that you have come to show us our true selves. And Lord, I pray for every woman who is coming here tonight. And if there's any piece of our true self that has been stolen or a piece that we haven't believed is. True. A
0: piece of our true self that has been stolen.
1: True. Lord, I pray that you would put it back together again. God, I pray that.
0: Or broken. You got to. Reassemble it.
1: You would use these moments to show us our true selves who you've truly made us to be an army set apart and called to fight on your behalf and to fight with you. Jesus, I thank you for your word. God, I know it's not me that makes it powerful. It is your weight and it is your spirit. And God, I.
0: Yeah, God's word is a lot more powerful when you actually preach it and teach it in context and actually rightly handle it so that those you're teaching may properly understand it. You know, just something I've noticed.
1: would be behind every part of this message to make it count to every woman who has taken the time to be here tonight in your name. Amen. Have you ever discounted something or thought eh, something wasn't valuable because you didn't realize what its purpose was? And then as soon as you discovered its purpose, you were like, this is amazing. Okay, this is where the Viagra comes in. Shoot, I'm giving you the punchline. I just couldn't help it. So I love random facts. I cannot remember my three kids' birthdays. You know when you go to the doctor's office and you have to fill out the forms? I can't remember any of all those numbers. I have three kids, and that's three numbers per kids. That's nine numbers, and they all get jumbled. And so I can't always remember the most significant details of life, but I remember random facts. The random things I read in Reader's Digest 15 years ago. Somehow that gets stuck in my mind and I remember that. So when I was trying to think of a story to exemplify this question and this thought about the knowing something's purpose increases its value, uh, I remembered a story I read about a drug that was being tested. And this, now you guys know the punchline, but this drug that was being tested, it was being tested, it was on clinical trials for low blood pressure pressure and for heart failure. And so they did this clinical trial, you know, through thousands of people all across the country. And as they did it, they were monitoring blood pressure and they were monitoring heart. People's heart function to see if this drug was helping it work. And as they got through it and the trials are coming back, It was negative, negative, not working, not working. And so they were about to shut down the drug trials and say, this isn't working. We're just going to have to close shop on this. So they asked all of the participants to give the drug back and say, hey, it's not working. It's time to recall it. And oddly enough, none of the older males wanted to give the drug back they all wanted to keep it. So upon further investigation, the researchers found that what they were just about to throw away has now become the most successful pharmaceutical ever created. And by five years ago, it sold, reached the $2 billion mark. So what they were about to throw away is totally invaluable, was actually extremely valuable. And I'm sure a lot of people have claimed it has helped their lives. Chelsea, what- What does a Viagra story have to do with us? It's this. Knowing our value and our purpose is what gives us, sorry, knowing our purpose is what gives us a sense of value and fulfillment. And as we can read here in Ezekiel 37, you know, we've been talking about it throughout the year. If you can remember back in November, if you can't, it's okay, because I can't remember yesterday all the time. But we've been talking about the story and this process that God goes through of bringing to life these bones that had been dead and they had been shameful bones and he brought them to life from the inside out and all of a sudden
0: shameful
3: bones
0: (laughs) what yeah and maybe that's the reason why she didn't read the previous verses because you know if she had actually read it in context nobody would be saying oh yeah those those shameful bones no they're dry how is dry shameful
1: sudden he didn't just raise them up so that they could walk around and look good he raised them up he gave ezekiel this vision that yes it was for natural israel but we've read that there's also scholars who say we can take this vision and apply it to our spiritual life and journey and what happens to us today
0: (laughs) again it's talking about the resurrection it's coming it still hasn't arrived yet
1: (sighs) he raised them up for a purpose And when God breathed life into these dry bones that had been dead and they came alive, the picture that the prophet saw was this. They stood up Mm -hmm. and they were a huge army. Mm -hmm. And if we live our lives without that purpose in mind.
0: What, What purpose exactly are you referring to?
1: If we live our lives thinking, oh, my job is just to fight for myself. My job is just to make myself comfortable. My job, the reason I'm here in life is to meet my needs and meet the needs of my family and just try to keep everything good and secure and hope that everything can work out and we can all make it to heaven with our college educations intact and our relationships intact. And so that is my core purpose of life. If we believe that is our core purpose, we're going to end up not fulfilled, not really doing what God created us to do, what God resurrected us to do, what God had in mind when he saved you. Yes, he loves you. If you never did anything for him, he would love you just the same. But you know, he created you. And so he knows what's best for you. He wrote the owner's manual. He has the owner's manual. He is the owner's manual. And so he knows that for you to live at optimum fulfillment is for us to all be a part of this army. This army of women who are fighting for things that are beyond ourselves and who are living beyond ourselves. And as we begin to get that Amazon wonder woman, Wakanda warrior just happening, that there's just going to be this fulfillment that is going to become, be inside of us that realizes.
0: Yeah. Who knew uh, that uh, Ezekiel 37 really can only be fulfilled by Amazonian women? All right, now a little bit of a note here. You'll, you'll note that she was pretty much talking about the importance of finding your purpose and somehow eschewing, as if it was a bad thing, uh, the work that we do in our vocations. Now, let's come back to Ephesians 2. I want to show you this, and I'll show you then uh, from Ephesians 5 and 6, you know the, the good works that we're called to as Christians. And so Ephesians 2, we already read out the first part, where we're dead in trespasses and sins, but there's there's more to it, and that is, even though we're dead in t- trespasses and sins, this is how each of us is born, we're uh, we're actually, this is the effect of original sin on all of us. But it says this in verse 4, "...but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ." and by grace you have been saved. And then we get to, uh, you know, I'll skip over to verses 8, 9, and 10, very famous verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, it's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, listen, for good works, plural, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one of the dangers of the doctrine that you heard Chelsea Smith teaching is that we've got to somehow find our unique purpose. And now it has something to do with being an Amazonian warrior army woman thing, which it doesn't. But um, but the idea here is that you're not going to be fulfilled until you discover and get to applying yourself to your unique purpose. And as if the, somehow the Bible then is the user's manual to figuring all this out. That's not at all it. None of us were actually created in Christ for a singular purpose. Each of us were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And works are plural. Purpose is singular. We're we're not created for a purpose. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which kind of then begs the question, what would be considered a good work by God? and so many people uh, they are they are deceived into thinking that the, the good works that God has called us to require us to you know ignore our children go fly halfway across the universe and dig fresh water wells in uh, in Nairobi or something like that that's not what you know we're called to do primarily now digging fresh water wells for people in third world nations who need fresh water is a good work but your good works are far more normal and ordinary than you could possibly imagine. In fact, here's what it says: Ephesians 5:22. Are you ready? Wives, submit to your husbands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as to the Lord, the husband's the head of the wife. Christ is the head; as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Verse twenty-five: Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. So, being a good spouse, you know, husband or wife, uh, you know, biblically defined, is a good work. Children, obey your parents. Uh-huh. Honor your father and mother. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Or, in our modern-day context, we can talk about, um, you know, uh, employees do a good job at work. And so, you will note this part here uh, where it says slaves, ob- uh, ob- you know, bond servants or slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not as way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or as free or as a freeman. So you get the idea here. So our good works then are done in our vocations as husband, wife, child. Uh, You know, if you have parents, each of us have a mommy and a daddy, a child. Um, And then that then bleeds into then our, um, you know, our job at work. You're doing a good work at work. This is a good work and it's pleasing in God's sight. But what Chelsea is preaching causes us to literally despise, despise the good works that Christ has called us to, and that we were created to do. We were not created with a singular purpose. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you can do your good works as a child. You can do your good works as uh, as a young adult, as a, you know, a parent. You can do them as somebody who's retired. You can even do good works as you know, if you're bedridden and not able to get out of bed and living, you know, in a in an in assisted care facility. Yeah, you said how is that possible? Well, you're going to do the good works of praying and for other people. You're you're still in the vocation of, you know, somebody who's a member of the priesthood of all believers, you know, we are a kingdom of priests, and so we pray. So the idea then is is get this idea that you've got a singular purpose just knock that out of your head altogether. We are not created in Christ for a singular purpose. We are created in Christ For good works and then you will see that the very things you're already doing for the most part the ordinary the things that chelsea kind of poo-pooed well those are the ways in which you are serving others loving each other loving others as christ has loved us and doing the good works that you were created in christ jesus to do so don't despise those and think that they are getting in the way of your purpose (laughs) no you are created in christ jesus for those exact good works So see them for what they are as pleasing unto the Lord." All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, we're going to be heading down to uh, Zoe Church and listening to Chad Beach about walking around these walls, a twisting of the story of Jericho. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
2: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe.
4: Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holliday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
2: How many are coming?
3: Um, two people. Well, what are their names? Uh, their
4: names
2: are... Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart.
4: Whoa, dude. Your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car
3: and stuff. Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but man... It's so smart, it's, like, really creepy. Huh, okay, man, this is cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house then? Yeah. Hey, GPS!
2: What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets?
3: Well, I guess we're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating.
2: And we're on our way, dude. In 300 feet, make a left turn.
3: So, Ray, what'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it, like, totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing. And then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah, but it's even better than that. Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third rate angel
2: that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact.
3: Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people.
2: Make a right turn in 50 feet.
3: All right, dude, I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking... I've got, like, some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it.
2: You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So that make you, like, Luke Skywalker or something?
3: Not even! I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker.
2: In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda.
3: Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the son of God died for me? Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda?
2: I feel like I'm being ignored.
3: The Force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the Force? That would make you like, God. Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude.
2: You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the Force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff.
3: Oh, uh, well I guess if I was a god I would've seen this coming.
2: Now you're finally starting to see the light. Too soon? Ah! <laughs>
0: for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee with milk now that's what I call a balanced breakfast so head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some that's g-i-l-l-e-s-p-i-e dot coffee Rex out
5: All
0: right, we're back. Uh, Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, um, you know, Christian sanctification has nothing to do with finding your dream destiny purpose thingy and then applying yourself to it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment lowest rank is powder monkey at $9.95 a month after that gunner's mate at 24.95 a month from there master gunner at 49.95 a month and then quartermaster 99.95 a month joining our crew is a great way to support us of course if you'd like to make a one time contribution you can click on the donate button if you'd like to become a patron via patreon click on the become a patron button if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we have a Vision Casting Leader update uh, proper. So let's do this. <laughs> Yeah. Tonight, I'm gonna take the word and twist it.
3: Crying all of these cheers, but the Lord's got it. At. Blinding eyes.
0: Lobos Ministry Records, and they're a version of
4: Casting Vision. vision.
0: All right, so we're heading over to Zoe Church, and we're checking in with Chad Veach. Chad Veach is another one of these super popular with celebrity type uh, pastors in the seeker driven, purpose driven movement, and he's going to be talking about the walls of Jericho, the story found in, in the book of Joshua. And he's not going to correctly identify what that is pointing to. In the Old Testament, Scripture is very clear. We're dealing with types and shadows. And the Promised Land itself is explicitly explained to us in Hebrews chapter 11. And when you can sort that part out, you can work out how the rest of the typology, types and shadows, works out in the story of how Joshua leads the children of Israel through the Jordan River into the promised land and what Jericho represents. And so uh, grab a Bible. We're going to be in a few different texts of scripture. And uh, here's Chad Veach in uh, walking around these walls. Here we go.
5: Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, let me just explain to you who we're talking about and exactly the context. Of what they're facing. Moses. Moses. We talked about Moses in our crush series. Moses. God chose him to be the, the leader of the Israelites. To bring them out of captivity. And into the promised land. So God used Moses. Moses experienced many miracles. They crossed through the Red Sea. They got, remember the plagues. They got out of Egypt. They got out of slavery. And, and Moses led them to, all the way up until the time they were about to enter into the Promised Land. Right before they go into the Promised Land, Moses has a, whoopsies, uh, he makes them a mistake. Yeah,
0: he disobeys God. Uh, he strikes the rock a second time when he was told to speak to it.
5: And God says, Moses, we're not going to use you to... To to lead God's people, my people, into the promised land. So Moses passes away and God chooses a new leader, and the new leader, his name is Joshua. Now,
0: let's kind of work through some of the types and shadows right now before we get too far into this message so that you can see for yourself, you know, really what should be going on here. So we're going to head over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told explicitly what the shadow type and shadow of the promised land is referring to. So Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Yeah, so you can already tell, wait a second, that he didn't actually ever live in that place. Right, because the promised land in the Old Testament is pointing to a different place. It's a type and shadow. It's like God is giving you a rough cut of the basic concepts and the major points in the outline so that you can recognize what it's always been pointing to so by faith sarah received power to conceive you get the idea there and then we'll go to verse 13 so these all died in faith not having received the things promised but didn't abraham dwell in the promised land all his life yes and no No, because the real promised land is not a postage stamp piece of property in the Middle East. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So in in its truest form, the uh, the promised land of the Old Testament is pointing to the new earth, which is our inheritance. It's our true homeland. And Abraham sojourning sojourning in Israel, Cana at that time, sojourning there, And not having received the thing promised, the promised land, shows that he was looking for a better country, a heavenly one. So if you're thinking, well, which one would that be? Read the back of the book of Revelation and you get the idea here. Now, next type and shadow is actually very thinly veiled because God himself is the one who used Moses to basically give us the Ten Commandments, to give us the law of God. Now, question, can the law save you answer no it can't it can only tell you where you have fallen short it'll let you know the things that you haven't done that you shouldn't have done and it'll tell you about the things that you've done that you shouldn't have done the law doesn't save you the law convicts you of your sins we are saved by grace through faith alone so can moses take you into the true promised land answer no (laughs) moses cannot So who is it that is the one who takes us into the real promised land? Answer, Jesus. And Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua or Joshua. So you'll note that it is not Moses who brings the children of Israel into the promised land. It's Joshua, Yeshua. And he's sitting there going, but that's the exact same name as Jesus. That's on purpose. You know, sometimes... God makes it so plain that you know it's like having a pimple at the end of your nose there's no way to miss it so that's the idea so if Moses can't bring you into the promised land only Christ can take you into the promised land and that's Part of the reason why there 's this change of changing of the guard, and you sit there and go, "But yeah, but Moses messed up that 's why he wasn 't able to make it in. Of course, Moses is a sinner like you and I, and even Moses had fallen short of the glory of God and did not did not keep god 's law perfectly, so not even Moses can be brought into the promised land by the law, so his his disobedience is the thing that disqualifies him from going into the Promised Land, just like our disobedience to God disqualifies us from going into the Promised Land. So Jesus has to come and to forgive us and wash away our sins. And you'll note then, uh, a miracle takes place that is a lot like the miracle that took place Uh, With the crossing of the Red Sea, it is the parting of the Jordan River. Both of these are allusions to baptism and the washing away of sins. Joshua is the one who leads them, the children of Israel, then through the waters of the Jordan to be baptized on their way into the real promised land. You kind of get the idea then. And so then what is Jericho representative? Well, you'll note that the children of Israel march around Jericho, You'll set, and yell many times, and eventually they shout. There's a trumpet blast, there's a shouting, and the walls come tumbling down. You can think of it this way, then, that uh, once they get to the promised land, Jericho is kind of a stand-in for sinful humanity. And, the, and then you, you get a picture of the end of the world, if you would, in the destruction of Jericho. That's really the picture of what's going on. So the fall of Jericho is a type and shadow of the day of Jesus' return in glory to judge the living and the dead. So now you've got all the major categories in play for the, how these Old Testament types and shadows work. But uh, Chad Veach here, he's, um, he, he's, he's instead, um, well missing the point, if you would. He's missed the point tremendously, making it about something that it really isn't about.
5: Now, Joshua takes over, and the first thing God says in Joshua chapter 1, God tells this guy time and time again, he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. He says, Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not fear. In other words, you cannot be a leader and live being gripped by fear. He says, "Yeah,
0: you catch that little part. You can't be a leader and be gripped by fear. Yeah, purpose driven guys like Chad Veach, you know, the seeker sensitive guys. It's they they overdose on on like worldly leadership, and so for him, it's all about being a vision casting leader. Which is why I put that little plug in there."
5: Be strong and courageous. I'm with you. Be bold. Be strong. I'm the Lord, your God. So he's promised these things and he's promised to use Joshua to bring God's people into the promised land. Now the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an awesome land. It's a spacious land. LeBron lives there. No, no seen if you listening in the 915 okay so it's an awesome land he says I'm going to use you Joshua to bring my people into the promised land now they've already experienced so many miracles with Moses but now this is Joshua's turn and God is about to use Joshua to lead them through the Jordan River they pass through the Jordan River which is a very similar uh miracle to the Red Sea they pass through the Jordan River and then all of a sudden they are faced with a city called Jericho now, Jericho is a massive fortified city, and these walls are fortified. They're very high. In fact, some some uh, uh, historians believe they're 35 feet high. This, this is a massive city. These are massive.
0: Yeah, Jericho actually had walls, an outer wall system, a very steep rampart, and probably 25 to 35-foot walls. Uh, that were at the top of the rampart. This was a formidable defense system.
5: Walls, And as they come to these walls, they are faced with an obstacle. Now, these walls are an obstacle that are in the way of them getting to their promised land. What-
0: now, notice what he just said, of them getting to their promised land. So already he's going to be uh, doing some weird things with the promised land that you, you shouldn't be doing. Uh Hebrews 11 gives you the definitive definition of what the promised land was always pointing to. That being the case, uh your promised land is not going to be anything different than Abraham's promised land. That's right. So your your promised land just like my promised land is the same as Abraham's promise promised land and that's the heavenly city whose foundation were were built by God himself. It's not about any ob- you know this isn't about you know getting a better job, finding your purpose, uh, you know, getting married or anything like that. That's not what this is referring to, but that's what he's doing here.
5: I want to talk together around the idea that there's something that's standing in the way between you and the thing that God wants you to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the thing that God wants me to do is not my promised land. And again, you know, the thing God wants me to do, well, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Plural, not a purpose, singular.
5: There might be an obstacle in your way. There might be a blockage in the way. There might be a relationship, a hang-up, an addiction, something that's blocking you from getting into the thing that God's destined you to become.
0: Well, no, yeah. so you'll note here, this is a very common way of, of interpreting the promised land, but this is not how Scripture interprets it. So we have to go with how Scripture interprets it, not how people like this are interpreting it. And I would say misinterpreting, in fact, misinterpreting the promised land and missing, you know, missing what it really says in Scripture about what it is, uh, is is to literally endanger yourself. Because now you're going to be chasing your tail, thinking it's God's will for you to figure out what your promised land is when God's word already tells you what it is. And so now I'm going to be looking for things that are keeping me from getting into my promised land. And my promised land is not, uh, you know, the new heaven and the new earth. Instead, my promised land is a a promotion at work or uh, becoming the world's best opera singer or something like that. And that isn't what this passage is referring to at all.
5: I want to talk together around this idea, and I want to show you how God God literally shows up for Joshua, and I believe God will show up for us the same. Is that right with you?
0: No, God will not show up for us the same way he showed up for Joshua. That's nonsense.
5: Watch here, they are approaching the walls of Jericho. God has told them to walk around six days around these walls. And watch here how these massive walls come down. Love this story, Joshua chapter 6. Let's just read in verses 15 and 16 and verse 20. It says, On the seventh day, they rose early in the morning at the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times around these walls. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, I love that, shout for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown as soon as the people heard.
0: Now, little note here, one of the ways you can tell that this is referring to something uh, other than just the event itself. Now by the way, the the fall the fall of the walls of Jericho this this account really happened in human history and God used this account and the details of it for the purposes of pointing us to our real promised land. And and so I already made the claim that uh this is referring to in type and shadow the the end of the world. So note as he's reading the account you have a shout and you have trumpets. Well, oddly enough, you, uh, you have something very similar, and let me, let me pull this up in the New Testament here. Let me do that real quick. There we go. In the New Testament, we have examples of this being discussed in Scripture in relation to the end of the world. So 1 Thessalonians 4... Talking about Christ's return, verse sixteen: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet. And so you you you, so hear these trumpets, and you know this shouting occurs in relation to the end of the world. The details actually match. And so you know, um, so He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds. So the shout of the archangel, the cry of the archangel, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet, these are referring then, you know, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And so the fall of Jericho in reality is in type and shadow like a dress rehearsal picture of the end of the world, the judging of the world. And then who is it that escapes? Uh, Those who have the scarlet thread. Yeah, Rahab the prostitute. The scarlet thread of, of uh, you know hanging out her window, so her and her family are saved, they're rescued. She's the one who helped the spies, and she believed. And oddly enough, when you do the research on this, uh, Rahab ends up marrying uh, the man who, who who you know at that point the, the line of the Messiah had come up to. Uh, so Rahab, she becomes the mother of Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth, and uh, and then they have Obed, and you know, and, 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 and so their their children then are the direct line that goes through David, you know, the son of Jesse on on to Jesus. And so you know, work the typology here. Scripture teaches you to work these things out in this way. And you again, again, you get this picture of what's going on. So Rahab the prostitute, the one who is saved after the, te- the trumpets and the shouting and the destruction of the walls of Jericho, after Joshua has showed up with his army to conquer Canaan, right? You get the idea. And then that immediately commences with Rahab marrying uh, the guy who's next in line for the Messiah. She's a picture of the Bride of Christ. All of this imagery is so well-documented and easy to unpack when you stop looking for yourself in Scripture and start figuring out how to tie it back into Christ and interpreting Scripture the way you know, Scripture tells you to. But see, he's not familiar with the, you know putting these dots together, and as a result of it, he thinks the promised land is something you're supposed to do.
5: Heard the sound of the trumpet. The people shouted a great shout. Everybody say great shout. A great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight up before him, and they captured the city fantastic story. They've been circling around the walls for six days just once, but on the seventh day there's something about that number seven. On the seventh day, they marched around that city seven times, and when that cue came, he said, blow the trumpets, all of God's people, I want you to give a shout. And the Bible says they gave a great shout, and the Bible says literally when they shouted the walls of Jericho came falling down flat. I want to preach a message today. You can write down the title. It's called Walking around these walls walking around these walls and I believe that whatever obstacles in your way today whatever you're facing we've been talking about this whatever you're facing it may be big but it's not bigger than God no matter what those fortified walls look like no matter how big that city or that problem looks like it...
0: Jericho is not a type and shadow of a difficulty that you're experiencing in your life right now
5: It could be sickness, it could be cancer, it could be poverty, whatever you're going through. Yeah,
0: cancer and poverty, again, are not obstacles to keep you from your promised land. In fact, in reality, cancer could be the
5: thing that's helping you get there quicker. Just just saying, yeah. It's not bigger than God. One moment with God, one moment with God showing up, come on, that obstacle is going to fall. Does anybody have faith that our God is a miracle worker?
0: Well, yeah, our God is capable of working miracles. That's not the issue. The thing is, you're making promises now, and somehow, you know, oh, cancer is keeping me from experiencing, you know, whatever promised land I'm supposed to be getting to. It's like the walls of Jericho, and I believe that God can cause that to fall. That's a total misapplication of this text in a way that's dangerously so that can undermine somebody's faith.
5: Amen to that. Walking around these walls, I want to talk about it, give you five things out of the Bible, out of this story that we can draw from today. Let's- yeah,
0: I think you get the idea. This guy totally misses the whole point. So if you found this helpful, and hopefully you did, and you learned a little bit about learning how to use you know, Scripture's interpretation of some of the types and shadows so that you can put the rest of the pieces together and see how it plays into it. Because again, in the Old Testament we have these symbols, but in the New Testament we have the arrival of the thing that was symbolized. And so you've got to learn how to read Scripture the way Scripture teaches you to read it so that you don't fall prey to bad teaching like this because I feel bad for the people there at Zoe Church because they're going to leave that church service going, Man, I've got to apply these five things to get rid of the obstacles that are keeping me from getting into, uh, you know, my you know, in, into my promised land. Yeah, you know, like those walls of Jericho. And it's like this is utter nonsense. There's no application here of that type that can be rightly gleaned from uh, from the Bible itself. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're heading over to Boo Church as we listen to Rich Wilkerson teach us about the book of Esther. Uh, yeah.
2: Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here.
3: You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents
0: Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> You're
2: listening to Pirate
3: Christian Radio.
0: for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey,
4: you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now, at Pirate Christian Media, have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe.
0: two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Let's do this right, though. The ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith for an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Boo Church. Rich Wilkerson presiding, and uh, this is supposedly about the Book of Esther. I don't know how. And the name of it is Book of Esther. Timing is everything, and no joke. No sooner will you hear Rich Wilkerson read out a portion of the Book of Esther. Uh, he will then depart from the text and just kind of do his own thing, as if somehow the Book of Esther is all about the thing that he's talking about, but it ain't at all what it's about, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Wh- Rich Wilkerson, the Book of Esther timing Is everything. Here we go.
6: Chapter 4, verse 12. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible says, Esther, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal pre- position for such a time as this. Now, a little bit
0: of a note here. We, we, I have no idea what's going on because this is a weird place to start. Now, maybe this is a sermon series and he taught on Esther last week. But I think we need to do a little bit of uh, context work. Remember, the three uh, rules for Sound Biblical Exegesis are context, context and context. And so when we apply the three rules of context, we're going to understand what's going on. Now we're going to back up just a little bit. So uh, into Esther chapter three, I'm going to go to verse one. I want to read out a a portion of the story itself so that you can see the actual dire um, circumstances that the children of Israel have found themselves in. The children of Israel are in captivity in Babylon Uh, and Esther is becoming, you know, has become a princess and all of that's in the earlier chapters. And as people who are not Babylonian, uh, and they are in exile from their, their homeland, uh, they are foreigners and they're not well liked by some of the longtime residents of Babylon is the best way I could put it. And so there's a a plot afoot to do them harm as a people, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Mordecai is um, is a Jew and a, a relative, I think the uncle of Esther. And so it, so uh, the this king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words, uh, words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he, uh, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuerus. And so in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asuerus, they, uh, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to uh, King Asuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that is not to uh, the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you." So then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of king Ahasuerus then sealed with the king's signet. Letters were sent by couriers in all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Then the couriers went and hurried out by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was uh, was thrown into confusion. So you you know what's going on here? Haman has got a plot to literally destroy all of the Jews who are a remnant now, because uh, they they have been you know destroyed. You Ninety know, percent of them are killed, dead uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar and his campaign against them. And and now they're in captivity in Babylon, and Haman has a plot to have them all destroyed. You know, this is like a, um, a warm-up for the Holocaust. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. This is rank anti-Semitism and a desire to d- destroy uh, people who are Jews. So Esther chapter 4 then says, "...when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry." Uh, he went up to the entrance to the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for uh, Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, "...for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, "...all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called... There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king uh, these 30 days. And then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you do not think to yourself that, the king's palace, uh, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. Or if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, uh, will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And so now we know the text, at least in context, what was going on. Uh, this is a dire situation that the Jews have found themselves in, and you know, literally they're being threatened with total destruction while in, in captivity in Babylon. So verse 15, so then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go to gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so they prayed and they fast, fasted and God spared them. It, it's a great story because, you know, when we find ourselves in dire circumstances, we, like Esther, uh, you know, prayer is this is the tool that uh, we need to uh, rescue us in those times of need. Uh, God d- d- does hear our prayers, so this is what's going on in this text. But uh, Rich Wilkerson, watch what he does with this, because what he does
6: with this is bizarre. We continue. Tonight, I want to preach to you in part two of our collection on the book of Esther. I want to preach to you from the subject, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, timing is everything. All right, look at your other neighbor and say, yo, other neighbor, timing is everything. This is the truth that I want to get into your heart tonight. And would you pray with me now as we ask God to anoint these words? Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing at VU. We thank you that tonight, God, you've brought us here for such a time as this. Lord, I pray now that you would have your way in this place. Change us from the inside out. May we never be the same. God, we thank you, Lord, that you're moving. And now I ask, Lord, that you would move in people's hearts here tonight. In Jesus' mighty name, all of God's people said? Yeah. All of God's people said? Yeah. Oh, come on, 6 p.m. Mayhem service. Can you make a little bit of noise? How many out there, by a show of hands, you are a watch person? Okay, four of us. <laughs> Hello, millennials. Okay, um, <laughs> who, who does your, who does, like, who keeps time, like, maybe on, you, you, what do you use, your phone, your phone? Your phone? Okay, yeah. that, that's what I would normally do. I, I never wore a watch. Up until Christmas, my mom just bought me this Apple watch. Your boy. Like, there's a lot of power on my wrist right here, man. A lot of technology up in this thing. It, it kind of makes me laugh, though, because it's like, man, the expectations have really grown for the watch. I sort of feel bad for all the other watches. They're like, when did just telling time stop being enough? <laughs> so uh, already
0: we're off to a weird start because he is talking about... A a watch and time and the name of the message is timing is everything what does this have to do with the story of Esther
6: the Apple watch is crazy it can do so much stuff like I'm telling you every app that's on my phone is now on my wrist this thing not only tells time it counts how many steps I take it watches my breathing it tells me my heart rate it will give me the weather I can text message my friends it can do all of this while paying every one of my bills all at the same time (laughs) I think in a lot of ways the Apple Watch is a really good illustration for what people look like in 2019 because in 2019 we are moving at a pace like we have never moved at before. I mean, humanity is moving fast and going quick and doing so many different things. And a lot of us, we actually think that we're as powerful as the Apple Watch. We think that we can multitask just like the Apple Watch. But truth be told, every human being is actually unable to multitask. We can only do one thing at a time.
0: What does multitasking have to do with the story of Esther?
6: Therefore, in 2019, time still is our most valuable commodity. Time is one of these interesting things because regardless of where you come from and regardless of who you are, Regardless of how much money you have, regardless of the family you were born into, regardless of your education, everybody on the planet gets the same 24 hours a day. And contrary to popular belief, you cannot buy time, you cannot borrow time, and you certainly can't make time. You can only spend time or waste time. Oh, I'm coming at you tonight.
0: With what? This is utter nonsense. What does this have to do with God's deliverance of the Jews in captivity in Babylon from Haman's plot to have them all destroyed?
6: Night on the second Sunday of the new year, for all of us to take a moment to audit where is our time going. Because wherever your time goes, your life will follow. The question tonight is, is where are you spending your time? Or better yet, where are you wasting your time? Is your time going... What does this have to do with Esther? ...going to things that matter? Is your time going to the things that you're passionate about? Are you spending your time on things that will live on after you die? Is your time going towards eternal things? No matter who I come in contact with these days, have you noticed that everybody today is busy? Like it's like almost cool to be busy. Dude, I'm busy. Do you know how much stuff I did yesterday? I'm busy, bro. I talked to a guy, guy yesterday. He doesn't have a job, but he's busy somehow. You ever meet people, they don't have kids, but somehow they're busy? What? If you, if you don't have kids yet, believe me, you have more time than you are giving yourself credit, okay? All the parents, there's four in here tonight, but come on. You're not busy. We live fast-paced lives. Yet, what if we're not as busy as we think we are? What if there is more time allotted to us? But what if we're wasting it? Now, I know life is complicated. I know there's a whole lot of people here tonight. And so it's hard to kind of put us all into one category. But come on, its I got the microphone. I'm going to teach. And so it's my message. Let me preach it how I want to preach it, okay? I want to help you tonight because I really think this is important that you actually begin to audit where your time is being spent or better yet, where your time is being wasted
0: why? (laughs) Whether or not I'm wasting time, well, let me me think about this for a second. I can think of a way in which I'm wasting time. It's by listening
6: to this sermon. Tonight, to kind of simplify our complicated lives, I I want to try to put your time into three categories. Uh, Up here on the stage, I have 21 blocks. Now, every one of these blocks represents eight hours. These 21 blocks, if you multiply them by eight, it would equal 168. Every one of us get 168 hours in our week. And when you start to actually budget your time, the first category that you have to start with is you have to start with the category of the things I don't control. And the first thing that you don't control is that if you're a human being, where's all the humans at tonight? Wave your hands in the air. That made me laugh. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, sorry. But if you're a human being, you actually have to take time to sleep. Did you know that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad Esther taught us the importance of recognizing that we need sleep.
6: Somebody like, no, I do not know that. All right, let's just do a little survey. Who who gets an average of eight hours of sleep a night? Wave at me, eight hours. Oh, look at that. These look at the. Okay, okay. This is awesome. All right, wave at me if you get um seven hours or less. We're seven hours, Okay, all right. Those are hardworking people right there. Okay, uh, sit. Where's the six hours? Oh my gosh. Five hours? There's hands. Okay, four hours? Three hours? All right, let's pray for healing right now. <laughs> Spirit of insomnia! Okay, stop. Okay. All right. <laughs> stupid. Okay. <laughs> Research tells us, if you don't know that we should all get eight hours of sleep every night. Now, whether or not you're getting eight hours of sleep t- tonight, just because it's my message, I'm going to give everyone seven days a week, eight hours of sleep, okay? So so this first column, I'm going to put seven blocks on here because it's going to represent 56 hours. So the first 56 hours that you don't even get to argue with, that you don't even get to choose, is this category called sleep. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hey! <laughs> Now,
0: sleep's- now, you'll note, I mean, Rich Wilkerson's timing and his uh, pop culture references are on fleek. But this is not a biblical sermon by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know what this is. This sounds like, uh, you know, the kind of message I can get from, you know, from a Franklin Covey time management seminar.
6: Sleep's an interesting thing because when I talk to people about sleep, everyone's like, no, I want it, to- I would sleep more, but I don't. I don't have time to sleep. I'm busy. You know, (laughs) once again, I understand that a lot of us in this room, like we don't get to control a lot of us. What time we wake up? A lot of you, you have a job that you have to be at a certain time. Others of you, you have kids that have a schedule that you have to meet. Most of us in this room, we probably don't get to control what time we wake up. But a lot of us, if we'd be honest, we do get to control what time we go to sleep at night. Problem is, is that you're dating Netflix, I'm just minding my business up here. You think about it. You think about it. And Mr. Netflix is taking up, you're wasting time with Netflix. Consider going to bed earlier, trying to meet our first column. Okay, column number two, here we go, is this other column, which is, if, if you're a person in this room um, that, number one, is obeying the Bible, or number two, is actually trying to be productive in society, you should have a job. Let me qualify because that came off very, that lacked compassion. Okay. Um, The Bible tells us if we don't work, we don't eat. And I actually believe if you're not working, there should be a valid reason that you are disabled, that you are looking for a job. Every one of us in this room, we should work. And so I'm going to put this second category of work. Uh, This morning, the 10 a.m. service, everyone knows I'm really bad at spelling. I actually spelled work, (laughs) W-E-R-K. Work! All right. Holler at your boy. All right. Now, listen. If you're actually working at a place, an organization, a business, a company, that's actually striving not to die, because that, that's a big thing. Like, for instance, if you worked at Blockbuster, this wouldn't actually, you know, apply to you. Again, what does this have to do with Esther. They don't exist anymore. Chill out, okay? But listen to me. If you're actually working at a place... Is
0: the reason why the Jews were saved is because Esther and Mordecai had jobs? They got eight hours of sleep, and you know, and they were properly budgeting their, their time management skills? Is that
6: what we're talking about here? place that's actually trying not to die... I just don't believe that it's just going to be 40 hours. That's kind of like the traditional amount. I just worked 40 hours and everything's just okay. Like, like that's an old paradigm that somebody gave us. Even if you are at a job right now that you're only working 40 hours, that's awesome, that's great. But what about drive time? What about get ready time? What about, I should have said that to my boss time? Whatever it is, okay? You're spending more than 40 hours. So I'm just gonna make it really simple tonight. I'm just gonna put 56 hours towards your job. Now, the best job in the world is when you're working at something that you love. But I understand that in a room this size with this amount of people, like last week I preached on the idea that there's God opportunities, that God's knocking at your door. And some of you, you got so pumped up. But as soon as you got pumped up, you got really nervous, and you felt all this pressure because you're like, yo, Rich, I, I'm at this job, and I hate this job. And the only reason I'm at this job is because i got to pay these bills.
0: Notice, again, the same idea how, you know, This type of theology teaches you to despise the good works that you are doing in the job that you are in. That's a huge, huge problem here.
6: And it's not my dream job. It's not exactly where I want to be. And so I'm really freaked out right now because I'm trying to go, hey, God, are you knocking on my door? Should I quit my job and just serve Jesus? What do I do? I'm really nervous because it's not my dream job, but I got to work there because I got to feed these kids. I want to settle you for a moment because not everybody gets to work their dream job, but just because you can't work your dream. Yeah, notice
0: uh, the, my you know me having to feed my kids and work at this job is keeping me from the thing I'm really called to do. That is so overt and so evil it's not even funny. job doesn't have to
6: stop you from being a person of purpose. Come on. Now, let me back that up. I want
0: you to hear it again in context.
6: Dream job, but I got to work there because I got to feed these kids. I, I want to settle you for a moment because not everybody gets to work their dream job, but just because you can't work your dream job doesn't have to stop you from being a person of purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's all about being a person of purpose. Rich Wilkerson is just the latest generation, cool, hip, celebrity, loved, the you know, pr- purpose-driven preacher. Yeah. He's the uh, millennial version of Rick Warren. Come on.
6: Because listen, there still is another 56 hours left. After you've slept, after you've worked, you still have another whole column that you get to choose and decide what it is that you want to work on. Maybe it's that new business you want to start. Maybe it's spending time with your family. Uh, maybe it's going to church. Hello? Again, what does this have to do with the story
0: of Esther? Oh. Uh,
6: maybe maybe it's going back to school, Holler. Maybe, maybe it's um it's starting that new creative project. Maybe maybe it's starting that band you always want to start. I don't know. Maybe it is Netflix. I don't have a problem, Netflix, as long as you design your time to say, I want to put it into Netflix. Because this third column, it's all about your passion. This third column is what are you passionate about? You have another 56 hours regardless of where you work. Oh, my goodness. What is this one? And the Lord multiplies.
0: Yeah, there was an extra brick.
6: Wow, that scared me. God just said, I want to give you another eight hours. This is, this is, <laughs> some of you are like, praise God, you know. <laughs> Netflix! Stop, stop, stop. This is, this is the category I want to talk to you about. Because regardless of who you are, after you've slept 56 hours, which most of you are not doing that, after you've worked a job whether you like it or not 56 hours which most of you are not doing that there still is another 56 hours for you to focus on your passion for you to put your full heart
0: yes yeah, see mordecai and esther i mean they were really good at using their 56 hours to focus on their passion good grief
6: For you to put your full focus, for you to give all your attention, for you to say, God, I'm going to make sure that my time is in order, because wherever my time is spent, my life will follow. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. If you want your life to change, where you spend your time is going to have to change. We, We kicked off this collection last week on the life of Esther. And man, I am so enjoying it. But if you missed last week, you got to go back and you got to hear the message. But Esther is this orphan girl living in Persia. She's a Jewish girl, but nobody knows that she's Jewish. King Xerxes, he is the king at the time. And he gets rid of his former queen known as Vashti. And they say, let's put a pageant on. And would you believe it? Esther, a real Cinderella story is picked out of everybody. And she becomes queen of Persia. She has a cousin named Mordecai. And Both of them are Jewish, and Mordecai, he continues to counsel her and advise her. The story ends in chapter 2 with Esther becoming queen of Persia. I mean, it's an amazing story. But in Esther chapter 3, which you're going to read tomorrow, you're going to be introduced to a brand new character or a brand new person. His name is Haman. Everyone say Haman. Haman. Now, if this was a Disney movie, which Esther almost reads like a Disney movie, Haman would be Jafar. He's the bad guy. He is this bad dude. And quickly in Esther chapter 3, we see that Haman becomes the chief advisor and that he's over all of the king's nobles. And every day he walks into the king's courts, everyone would bow down and they would give honor and worship towards Haman. Except one man by the name of Mordecai, Esther's cousin. The reason why Mordecai would not bow down is because Mordecai was a Jew and he only served one God. It is important for you in this new year that you identify who it is that you worship because whether or not you believe in God, trust me, we are all worshiping something. And you have to define the thing that you're going to go to with your problems. You have to define the thing that you are going to worship. And because he would not worship, Haman becomes angry at Mordecai, so angry that he says, I want to kill Mordecai. Not just kill Mordecai, he takes it a step further. He says, I want to kill every Jew living in the land. It's always shocking When we have one bad experience with a person and then we judge an entire people group for that person's actions. This is actually where racism births from. And this is actually where so many genocides historically have occurred. And that's exactly where this story goes. It leads to Haman plotting a genocide against the Jews. What he does is he waits for the right time, because timing is everything, to go and present his plan.
0: You see what he did there? Yeah, oh yeah. Timing is everything. So he waited for the right time. Yeah,
6: This is not what this story is about. And Xerxes, he says, Xerxes, there's a people group living in your land that are disobeying you, that do not honor you. They got their own practices. And Xerxes says, what do you think we should do? Haman says, I think we should wipe them all out. And he actually creates a day, if you'll believe this, where a decree and an edict is set that on that day, Anybody can attack and kill a Jewish person, and if they kill them, they will not be held accountable. This is the edict that goes out. When Mordecai hears about this, Esther chapter 4, the scripture says that he rips his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he begins to fast. Now, the book of Esther is interesting, and it separates itself from every other book in the Bible in the fact that not one time in all ten chapters is the name of God even mentioned.
0: Now, that's true.
6: Although God is not mentioned, his fingerprints and his presence are all over the book. For although we do not hear Mordecai call out to God, God is certainly inferred. Because Jewish people, when they begin to fast, they weren't just stopping eating. They were denying their flesh that they might be in tune with the presence of God. He went to God in prayer because... In,
0: yeah, in tune with the presence of God is not what fasting is all about.
6: There's going to be some problems in life that no man can settle for you and no man can solve for you, but there is one. His name is Jehovah Jireh, and he is your provider, and you have to learn how to fight your battle on your knees. We are in day seven of 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we are going to God in prayer because we have problems that can only be solved in prayer. And as he's fasting, Esther gets word.
0: Yeah, that, that's not a good theology either. Jesus, is, Jesus teaches us to pray for things even as basic as daily bread. Uh-huh. Yeah, we go to prayer because God has made it clear. He wants to hear from us in prayer.
6: And she sends a re- person out there to get some, get some reports because Mordecai doesn't look good. When you start fasting, you don't always look good. I'm seven days into a liquid fast and I might pass out right now. (laughs) And Esther says, Mordecai, what's going on? And Mordecai, he sends back a word. He says, Esther, the time is now. You must go to King Xerxes and you must plead our case. You must fight for the Jewish people. It is now time for you to reveal who you actually are. In fact, Esther, you've been promoted to the palace for such a time as this. Here's what's fascinating about this part of the scripture. Esther has now been in process for nine years. We know through the scriptures that she's now been queen for five years. In the five years that she has been queen, her real name is Adassa. It's her Jewish name. She's been going by her Persian name, Esther. And for five years, she has hidden her true identity from King Xerxes, not just by her own desires, but on the council of Mordecai. What does it tell me? It tells me that Mordecai Mordecai was playing the long game with Xerxes. Too many Christians are only playing the short game. Too many Christians think that when they meet somebody, the first thing they have to tell them is how they are a Christian and that they believe in God and that they believe in the supernatural and they just want to share everything they've ever learned about God in the very first time that they meet somebody. We think that if we don't speak up, nobody will ever know that we're a Christian. Have you ever considered that people ought to know that you are a Christian not by what you say, but rather by what you do? We get so eager to introduce people to Jesus that we don't actually take time to meet them. I grew up in a time period, and I don't know what your background is, but this is my story, and it's my message. And um, I grew up, and we were taught from a young age, on personal evangelism, that we were, we were, this is actually what we were taught, we would meet a stranger, and the first question we would ask him is, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you spend eternity? Ooh, that'll get a reaction. I love the heart, I love the intention. I'm sure people did get saved, but I have to believe that we also turned a whole lot of people off. Because if we care so much about somebody's eternity, we also must show that we care about their reality. Before you actually reveal your title, you ought to let people watch your testimony. Your whole life should be a sermon. Every be-
0: now, Scripture is clear on this, and Christ himself is clear, that, uh, that our good works, they, they shine before men. And they do, and, and our unwillingness to participate in the world's sin and its debauchery and all this other stuff does stand out uh, against the darkness of of the world that we live in. That, this is most certainly true. And you got to recognize your testimony is not the testimony that saves people. The testimony that saves people is the testimony about Christ. His virgin birth his sinless life his compassion his love his teaching his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for our sins his victorious resurrection from the grave on the third day and his ascension into heaven these are the things that comprise the testimony that does lead to somebody being brought to faith in christ how do we know this romans 10 says faith comes by hearing Hearing by the word of Christ. So keep your good works in their proper category and don't think that your testimony or your changed life or your good works then form the basis of the good news that people need to hear in order to be saved. Keep in mind the testimony that they need to hear about is Christ's.
6: Every bit of your actions should be evangelism. Your conversations should stir up faith all around you. The way that you live your life, it ought to be attractive. It ought to be the light of the world in the midst of darkness. We need some believers who will actually wait on the Holy Spirit and wait for the right timing before they reveal everything. We need to play the long game. You actually don't need to wear a t shirt to work that says, I'm on fire for Jesus. You should actually just walk in a way and live in a way that is so attractive. I don't need a t shirt. Jesus called me to be the salt of the earth. I just live my life being salty with people. Get salty, make them thirsty. Come on, make them want what you got. You ought to be living your life in such a way that people take notice. Something different about that guy. Something different about that girl. I don't need a message. Your whole life is a walking, talking message.
0: No, actually, you do need a message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, which is the gospel. You do need a message.
6: Come on, 6 p.m. Somebody give God a shout of praise. We just got to wait on the Lord. People are not turned off by God. They don't trust us.
0: Uh, People actually are born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Yeah, they are turned off by God.
6: Just be a people here in Miami that actually show genuine interest in people. Let's actually build trust with people. Let's actually serve people. Let's actually be curious about People And then let's wait on the spirit for the right time before we say, here I am. I've been up in your life all this time, but I've been waiting for the right moment. Because timing is everything. Here's Esther. She's been living. And all of that
0: regarding evangelism because Mordecai didn't want Esther to reveal that she was a Jew. Mm Mm-hmm
6: in the king's palace now for five years and Mordecai, he sends word. He says, now is the time. Now you must let him know who you are. Listen to me, Esther. If you do not step up and if you do not speak up, rest assured, somebody else at some point will come and save us, but all of us in your father's household and you included will die. Don't think just because you're up there wearing that Persian mascara that this thing ain't coming your way too. (laughs) Don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you came from. Don't for one moment stop remembering who you are. You are in the palace for such a time as this. This whole thing was a God set up for this moment that you would rescue your people. In my life, I've learned that when I start to get my time in order, when I start to take account for my time, and I start living my life with intention and design, what I have found is that God will come knocking on my door and he will present me with God opportunities. And-
0: what? So notice, this is a theology based on his experience. And so now we're back to his whole time management spiel that he gave earlier in this sermon, if you can call it that. And so now from his experience, when he's... He's doing intentionality regarding time management. God apparently knocks on his doors and gives him God opportunities. No biblical text says this.
6: And God opportunities always require you to move. They no require,
0: biblical text says that.
6: Are you to pivot. They require you to step up, step out. Yet so many of us in this room, because I know this is a faith-filled room, we have this question that is overwhelming to us, and we're wondering, how do I know when it's time for me to move?
0: Yeah, because what you're basically preaching is your own theology. And subjectively, work, walking that out, you know, you're going to have all kinds of doubts.
6: How do I know when it's time for me to stick at it? And How do I know when I should quit that? And how do I know when I should pivot? And how do I know?
0: Well, you got to know when to hold them. And you, you got to know when to fold them. You, you need to know when to walk away and when to run. And don't ever count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done.
6: Oh, when I should stretch because I can almost just hear Esther going, okay, Mordecai, I've been in the palace for five years. Why is now the time? What are the...
0: In- she didn't say that. In fact, when word came back to her what was going on, Uh, It was pretty obvious that now was the time. It was like now or never. That's pretty much how the narrative worked itself out there.
6: Indicators, what are the factors, what are the things that God will reveal in me that would show me that now is the time? There's a lot of things I could give you. The biggest thing is that you have to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. No, nowhere in Scripture we're told that God's going to speak
0: to us in a still small voice. So timing is everything, but you need to learn how to listen to a still, small voice, which Scripture actually doesn't teach you that you need to listen to. You need to um, pay attention to the written Word of God.
6: And you have to step out. But there are some factors that I have seen in my life over and over and over again that I want to share with you because timing is everything. There's nothing worse than getting the right thing at the wrong time. Some of you, you've experienced that in a relationship before.
0: (laughs) Are we done with Esther at this point? You're not at all really telling the story. There's so much more to this, and you're not... I mean, I loved your little gloss over it, but what does this have to do with what you just said about the story itself?
6: It wasn't that she was bad or that you were bad. It's just it was the wrong time. And you rushed it or you were too late to it. Some of us, we've experienced that in business. Yo, 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 I had that idea and the idea was good. And you had the resources and you had the right people. But the only thing that was missing was that it was the wrong time. I want to give you three things that I've seen in my life that always are indicators for me that, okay, it is now time for me to step out.
0: So here are these indicators. Are they found in the Bible, Rich?
6: One, write this down. I always know it's the right time when capacity is shrinking, but calling is expanding. What? (laughs) What
3: is this?
6: You see, Esther was not raised to be a queen. You need to know where Esther came from. Esther was born in a Jewish home. She would have grown up learning the Torah. She would have known Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. She would have known the stories of her forefathers. She would have read about the great battles of David. She would have read about the story of Moses parting the water. She grew up with a calling, not to be a queen, but to be a child of God. But for the past five years, she has been in the palace. And don't get me wrong, the palace on the outside looks really good. The palace is safe. The palace is comfortable. The palace is luxurious and it's awesome and everything comes at your becking and call. And there are no challenges in the palace. Problem with the palace is, is that the palace wasn't her calling. She was called to rescue her people. The palace was simply a vehicle to her calling. Yeah.
0: Really? Okay, that's a strange theology of vocation there.
6: Listen to me loud and clear. Wherever you're not being challenged, your capacity is shrinking. The only way for capacity to grow... What
0: are you talking about? Where is this biblical doctrine of capacity and shrinkage and things like this?
6: ...is that it has to be challenged. Yeah. We all think we want to live in the palace until you get to the palace and you realize that you're not getting stronger living in the palace. Go through. I've never lived in a palace. Throughout the Bible, you will see this over and over and over and over again. Joseph, before he gets to the palace, has to go to the pit, then he has to go to the prison, and then he makes his way to the palace. David. So are you in your pit phase yet? Before he ever gets to the palace, he has to live his life in a cave. Why? Because he learns more about being a leader, living in a cave, than he ever did living in a palace.
0: Yeah, no scripture says that either. Because when you're being... In fact, David was a, a, a very successful leader before he ever hid in a cave. Long before.
6: Challenged. Your capacity is growing. And the longer Esther lives in this palace, the more her capacity is going to shrink, although her calling was always to be a child of God, a redeemer of God's people, that she was to be someone that would come and rescue and save her people. We live in a time right now that many of us, we are avoiding pain and discomfort at all costs. Yet the other side of your pain and discomfort is you getting stronger. If you want your capacity to grow, you have to challenge it. I don't want to be in an environment that's not challenging. I don't want to be in an environment that's easy and comfortable. Oh, my flesh wants that, but I have denied my flesh that I might feed my spirit. See, if you're not careful, you will think that you can just maintain by showing up. But this is not even true in the gym. I thought this was true for many years. <laughs> I thought if I just went to the gym, that I could at least maintain. But how many you know just, just showing up to the gym doesn't mean that you're even going to maintain? It definitely doesn't mean that you're going to grow. You have to push yourself. Your muscles require exercise for growth to occur. This is why for me...
0: This has nothing to do with the story of Esther.
6: It is imperative that when I work out, I do so with a personal trainer. Because left to myself, I never think I've got any more in the tank. I'm like, three! That's good. I notice that when I go work out alone, my workouts are always shorter. I'm always tired quicker. (laughs) And I always celebrate myself more. (laughs) I'm way too proud of myself walking out of that gym when I'm by myself. I'm like, look at me, yo. And no, I need a trainer because a trainer is the outside voice that speaks into my circumstance and says, Rich, actually, you've got a whole lot more in you. You think you've got three in you, you've actually got ten in you. But if you don't get your ears listening to my voice, you will never push yourself, and your capacity and your strength will never grow. Come on, can I prophesy to you?
0: No, you cannot prophesy to me, and this has nothing to do with Esther. It wasn't about capacity or stretching or anything like that.
6: In 2019, you have more inside of you. Your capacity can get bigger.
0: Yeah, my capacity for sin is pretty huge. You're going to talk about the cross and what Christ has done for us, call people to repent of their sins and things like that. You'll notice that uh, all we're getting here is kind of folk law, not biblical law, which really, truly convicts us of our sins, but folk law, you know, uh, common sense experience law. Yeah, good advice for the gym, great advice for time management, but we're not hearing about real commands of God, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not bear witness, false witness against your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. You're not getting anything like that or any true form of love for neighbor. In fact, you'll notice time management and doing better at the gym, having a personal trainer. These are all about you. This has nothing to do with actual works that are done, good works done for the sake of your neighbor and helping them, your neighbor, in his needs.
6: This is why you can't afford to live in an environment that will simply comfort you and coddle you. It will feel good for the short term, but...
0: Yeah, like Voo Church.
6: It will not produce the life that you are dreaming of.
0: Produce the life that you are dreaming of. Hmm. How about true Christian sanctification?
6: I'm telling you over and over again, you don't just risk not growing, you actually risk shrinking. Because if, because if you don't use your muscles, you lose your muscles. The older you get, the more you don't use them, you're actually getting weaker, friend. And your capacity works the same way. And here's Esther. Esther's in this place. And how do I know it's time for her to make a move? Because if she stays any longer, her capacity is going to shrink. But all the while, while her capacity is shrinking, the calling is ever expanding. The calling is growing. The calling is flourishing. This is why you need to get a coach in your life. Every person who's great at what they do has so
0: I guess apparently Rich Wilkerson is at this point telling us the big application. you want to be more like jesus you, you need a you need a coach, a life coach
6: wow as a coach The coach is not even necessarily better at them at what they do. But people that are great have decided to submit their life to the voice of a coach because the coach is an outside voice that speaks into their current situation and says, you have more than you know, and I'm here to push you. I'm here to challenge you because if you don't get challenged, your capacity will never expand. How do we know it's a time to pivot? How do we know it's a time to take a step? You can always know an indicator when God's calling you to step is when you are sensing your capacity is starting to shrink, but your calling is still expanding.
0: Yeah, again, I don't even know what any of that means, and this has nothing to do with the book of Esther. In fact, this is not a biblical doctrine. This is a doctrine based on Rich Wilkerson's personal experiences.
6: Number two, I want you to write this one down. How do I know it's time to make a move when fear is overwhelming, but faith is unrelenting? Okay. See, the story of Esther, if you don't get the context, it won't make much sense because some of you are here tonight, you're like, yo, how come girl don't just go talk to her husband? Like, that seems easy enough. But the reality is, is that in that time period, You'll find out as you read Esther chapter four that nobody was allowed to walk into the king's chambers without an invitation. And it has been 30 days since Xerxes has called upon Esther. And so when Mordecai sends this request to go and ask the king for mercy, what he's really asking Esther to do is to risk her life. And for Esther, here she is, and she goes, I think this is a God opportunity, but if this is a God opportunity, how come I'm so afraid? Some of you tonight, you know that feeling.
0: No, she didn't say that. Those words are not in the text, nor are they even inferred. I think this is a God opportunity, but how do I know? That's not part of this story. Now Rich Wilkerson is adding to the biblical text.
6: Some of you tonight, you know that feeling. Because you're in a situation right now, and you're wondering to yourself, if this really is God speaking to me, shouldn't confidence be coming over me right now? I wish I could tell you that's been my experience, but my experience has often been when I'm operating in faith, I don't experience confidence. I typically experience fear, but then my.
0: Yeah. Notice again, we're dealing with a theology based upon his experience, not what God's word says.
6: A faith kicks in and says, you have not been given a spirit of fear. You're going to choose to walk in faith. Every time God speaks to you, the devil...
0: Yeah, walk in faith based upon God supposedly speaking to me. But notice over and again, the language shows that he's not even confident, confident that that voice is God himself. Very fascinating
6: going to start shouting at you you can't do it it's too hard for you it's too big for you you're not good enough you will fall you will fail but the longer you walk with god you start to learn wait a minute i know
0: i'm not esther and neither are you
6: the devil's shouting but the only reason why the devil is shouting is because maybe just maybe if i step out and do this maybe i'm a threat to the devil and if i could just hear
0: maybe just maybe i'm a threat to the devil all of a sudden i'm becoming the savior mm-hmm. rather than focusing on our true savior jesus christ rich Wilker- wilkerson is pointing us to ourselves as if somehow we are now the saviors, and of course we've got to act in faith on a voice that we think might be God that may not be because we're not exactly sure. Yeah, you see the problem here?
6: Fear God's voice, I can step out in faith See, God opportunities are wrapped up in overwhelming fear. The longer you walk with God, maturity is this. Oh, that makes me afraid? That must be an opportunity. (laughs) Dodge, you and I, we've always had this little phrase if it scares us, we got to run towards it. Because we've learned that on the other side of our fear, run towards what exactly? There's a God
3: opportunity,
6: that God is at work. And so we wait because timing is everything fear. it 's got gonna- Cue
0: sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, trying to convince them to make decisions of one kind or another. And apparently, the decision is for you to be like Esther and listen to some kind of God voice inside of you uh, that is telling you to do something that you're afraid of, which you're then going to supposed to run towards in faith. Mm-hmm.
6: It's going to be overwhelming, but I'm telling you you close your eyes at night and you go to bed and fear it's overwhelming but i'm telling you if there's just a hint of faith some of you are waiting for great faith you don't need great faith jesus said faith the size of a mustard." M- faith in
0: whom for what was jesus referring to faith the size of a mustard seed when it comes to believing that you're hearing the voice of god in you to run towards a god opportunity is that what he's talking about or faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal
6: life. Mustard seed can move a mountain. Fear creates mountains. Faith removes mountains.
0: Yeah, as profound as that might have sounded, that's not what Scripture teaches.
6: I always know it's time, and I always know it's God, And I always know it's a moment for me to step up and step out when that fear is overwhelming, but I go to bed at night and I close my eyes, but there's a hint of faith. It doesn't feel right, Rich. You don't walk by your feelings. You walk by faith. It doesn't look right, Rich. You don't walk by sight. You walk by faith.
0: Not faith in Christ, faith that that still small voice is telling you to jump on a God opportunity. Big difference.
6: Here's Esther. She's afraid to die. Of course, this mission, this opportunity, was risky. God opportunities traditionally look pretty risky at first, but if you,
0: God opportunities are risky at first, yeah, uh huh.
6: You can learn to lean into His voice and wait on God you're going to discover that your purpose... Lean into
0: his voice. Again, where is this taught in Scripture? This is not what's taught in Esther. Let me back this up just a little bit.
6: Traditionally, look pretty risky at first. But if you can learn to lean into his voice and wait on God, you're going to discover that your purpose is on the other side. Number three, I want you to write this down. I always know it's time for me to, to move... When my capacity is shrinking, but my calling is expanding. (laughs) I always know it's time for me to move when my fear is overwhelming, but but faith is still unrelenting. And I always know it's time for me to make a move when passion is burning, but peace is calming.
0: (laughs) You know it's time to make a move when passion is burning, but peace is calming. Again, not a biblical doctrine. This is all based on Rich Wilkerson's experiences.
6: I want to get this in your heart tonight. So uh, you, I don't want that anywhere near me. In this room right now, and you're already going rich. You don't understand the thing that God's calling me to do. It is so big. It's bigger than me, man. Right, I told you last week, God opportunities are always bigger than you. Notice he's not confronting
0: them with their sin, calling them to repent, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He's not preaching biblical sanctification. He's basically preaching that you need to have faith in that still, small voice that's telling you to do something big. No scripture teaches this.
6: If it wasn't bigger than you, you wouldn't need God. The fact that. Oh, yeah.
0: If it wasn't bigger than you, you wouldn't need God, which is supposedly the proof that you're actually hearing from God. In reality, that's no proof at all.
6: It's bigger than you is an indication that you can't do it on your own. Therefore, you need God's help. And God loves when you need his help. But passion.
0: I need God's help every day. There isn't a day that goes by where I'm not fully dependent on God. Not
6: one day. We'll start to burn. You see, Esther, she was raised in a Jewish home, and she would have been raised on those old stories, and she would have had a passion for God and passion for her people. She would have been burning on the inside with love for God and love for her people people. It is so important in this year that you actually take the time to look at where your time is being spent and where your time is being wasted and actually go back to this 56 hours and say am I actually focusing on my passion? Some of you have been on this earth for 30 years and you have yet to define what you're passionate about. So? You can't go one more day like that.
0: I can't. Is that a commandment from God? Thou shalt not write down your passion?
6: Rich, how do I find my passion? Passion is the fuel that wakes you up. Passion is the thing that drives you into your future. Again, this is a total example
0: of scratching, itching ears.
6: If you're trying to find your passion, the simplest way to identify your passion is to define what is the thing that breaks your heart.
0: Because there's a lot of problems. False teaching like this that scratches itching ears rather than proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins.
6: In this world, but the thing that breaks your heart is the thing that you're passionate about. And once you find your passion, you have discovered your purpose. That you
0: quit listening. Says no biblical text anywhere.
6: Living life on accident—that you quit living life, apologizing—but you live every single day on purpose for a purpose. God designed you with a purpose. You were meant to live. No, we
0: are created in Christ Jesus for good works.
6: This life with a purpose. And here's Esther. Esther, you have a purpose. You weren't just supposed to go to the palace and look pretty. No, there's something deeper on the inside of you. You are a rescuer of God's people.
0: I love Esther because... Again, I'm not Esther. You're not Esther.
6: Esther. She says, all right, we're going to look at it next week. Chapter 4. She goes, okay. She doesn't mention God's name, but she says, I want everybody to go on a three-day fast. (laughs) See, this thing we're doing called fasting... It's been happening for a while. And she says, I want us to fast. And why was she fasting? She wasn't fasting to try to define if she was passionate. See, she already knew what her desire was. She always had a desire for God and she always had a desire for his people. But what we must learn from Esther is that you cannot simply be led by your desires. If you're just led everywhere by your desires, you will end up destroyed. Your desires are not enough. To be an indicator of when you should move and when you should step out. In fact, some of you, the reason why you haven't had any kind of fruit come in your life is because every time your desires shift, you shift with them. But you've got to make sure that you have something to counter your passion. And so Esther said, I'm going to take it to God, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God. And what was it she was looking for as she began to seek God, as she began to take her passionate prayers to God? She was waiting on the peace of God.
0: because Which text says that she was waiting on the peace of God? Not familiar with that portion of Esther.
6: When your passion is burning... That's not enough for you to step out. You must wait on the Holy Spirit to come rushing in with the peace of God that transcends all understanding.
0: Yeah, that's misusing the text about the peace of God that transcends all understanding. That's That wasn't in play here in the story of Esther, and he's now using that to somehow talk about you trusting that still small voice to do something bigger, bigger than you that you have to trust God for and learn your passion and, and then find your purpose. Yeah, that's not what that text is about.
6: That there is this balance between passion and peace. That God, I'm not going to move, I'm not going to take a step. Regardless of what my desires say until you actually give me your peace. Spoil
0: <laughs> Yeah, this sounds so Christian, but it's not.
6: Spoiler alert. Esther does go to the king and spoiler alert, Esther does save her people. And spoiler alert, Esther is a shadow. No, God
0: does save his people. Not Esther, God does through Esther. Now I'm gonna back this up just a little bit so we can keep listening to this in context.
6: Peace. Spoiler alert, Esther does go to the king. and Spoiler alert, Esther does save her people. And spoiler alert, Esther is a shadow of Jesus. Oh, so
0: he understands types and shadows. How odd. So finally we learn that Esther is a type and shadow of Christ. Yes, in some way that's true. For
6: Jesus would come and he wouldn't just risk his life, he would give his life so that all of us could walk into freedom. This was Esther's purpose. Freedom from what, Rich? But before Esther made a move, she waited on God's peace. I want to encourage you tonight that regardless of what your situation looks like, God offers you peace. Regardless of how hard the pain is that you're facing, in the midst of pain, God can give you peace. The scripture shows us that in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a storm, God can give you peace. And when I track back on my life, I'm telling you, this has been one of the things that has saved me over and over and over and over again. Because I started thinking about this place called Vu, And I can go right back to it, man. I can go back to those years. And I was in an environment that if I stayed any longer, my capacity was going to shrink. Because my capacity was getting smaller, but my calling, oh, I had a vision and I could see what God was doing. He had a
0: vision. He's a vision-casting leader in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement.
6: I was so afraid. I was so scared to step out. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work? But I would go to bed at night, and although fear was overwhelming, there was just this hint of faith on the inside of me that I can't stay quiet, that I can't stay down, that I gotta step out, and if I don't go, I'll never know, and if I never know, I'll be thinking about it forever. I got.
0: You see, Rich Wilkerson... He practices what he preaches. He's just like Esther. And that, and that makes him a shadow of Christ, I guess.
3: got to take a step. And,
6: and God started to break my heart. Like, he started to break my heart. He started to give me a new passion for him. He started to give me a passion for people. Like, you cut me open, I'm telling you. What is my purpose in life? My purpose in life is to help people connect to God. I want to build this thing called the church, not Voo Church, the church. That's that's what I'm passionate about because that's what my purpose on this earth is. But I'm telling you, I don't make a move until the Spirit gives me peace.
0: Right. You, You don't want to move until the Spirit gives you peace.
6: Until the Spirit says, all right step all right go because i've learned timing is everything it's interesting
0: right he he's learned that the timing is everything
6: because tonight trying to get you to evaluate where you're spending your time because there is not a doubt in my mind if you will start to get your life into order and if you'll start to take account for your time, and if you'll start to spend your time on things that actually matter, God is going to knock on your door, and there are going to be opportunities that are going to be afforded to you, and you're going to. You,
0: you see, God's not going to knock on your door until you, you get this time thing right, you know, and you're intentional about it.
6: Have these moments come in life of going, when do I step out? When do I pivot? When do I stretch? When do I go? When do I make the move? But it starts over here. That if you'll start focusing first and foremost on what it is that you're passionate about, you'll start giving that 56 hours. You got 56 hours this week. Starting tomorrow, 56 hours. What are you passionate about?
0: Right, so you got to make a commitment. The Holy Spirit's waiting on you, man. You, you got to intentionally work out that 56 hours to find your passion so that you can finally achieve your God-given purpose.
6: Because whatever you're passionate about, Is going to create your purpose.
0: Says no biblical text anywhere, especially Esther.
6: I'm going to start with my purpose. I'm going to give my time over to my purpose. And what happens is that when you start living life in your purpose, I don't care what your job is. I don't care if you're going to work at a place that is not the place you want to work at. What you start to learn is that you're living life out of passion and purpose. And so now what you've discovered is that wherever you go at any time of the day, God is simply preparing you for the next thing that he wants to do in and through your life. Come on, somebody. So now when you go to work, whether you like it or not,
0: it's... Sim- Again, note, uh, your work is where scripture says you do your good works, at least a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And he's basically making it sound like your work is getting in the way of the good works that God would have us do.
6: Simply a season of preparation. Tomorrow I'm showing up to my cubicle. And I know it's a new year, but it's also a new me. Because this is my season of preparation. And God is preparing me. And because I care, I will prepare.
0: Lots of applause there.
6: But when you live your life out of purpose and you live your life spending every day in preparation, what will take place is is that every night that you go to bed, you won't need an extra Ambien. You won't need nine glasses of red wine. You won't have to jump up in the middle of the night and eat a bowl of cereal. But before you know it, you'll lay your head down on your pillow at night And you will have
0: peace All because you made the commitment To spend 56 hours per week Working on your passion And thus discovering your purpose Not peace that comes from Christ Because you've been reconciled to God No peace that comes from Apparently Christ for Committing yourself to Proper time management So that you can Apply yourself to your passion and purpose
6: I want you to see this I want you to see this I want you to see this. See, this is what the world says. The world says, first 56 hours, sleep. Second 56 hours, work. Third 56 hours, passion. But God says, I came to flip the script. First 56 hours go to your purpose. Second 56 hours go to your preparation. And the third 56 hours, God promises you...
0: Just scream and yell and make it sound like it's real. Screaming and yelling is no determinator of whether or not what you're being taught is the truth.
3: He's going to give you peace!
6: Come on, somebody, give God a shout of praise!
0: I already have peace from God. Christ has bled and died for my sins, reconciled me to the Father, given me his Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, regenerated me, raised me from the grave. I have, I already have
6: that peace. He promises you peace that surpasses all understanding, peace that transcends all understanding. Timing is everything. And we got to learn to wait on God because God is going to speak. And when he speaks, we want to make sure we are prepared to move into our purpose.
0: Yeah, see, God's going to talk to you eventually once you get your time management thing sorted out. So you want to be ready to move into your purpose when that happens. Uh huh.
6: For when we move into our purpose, we're going to operate in peace. Come on, if you believe that, can you give the Lord a round of applause tonight?
0: No, I don't believe a word of it. So there you have it, a complete mangling of the story of Esther. You'll notice the narcissistic eisegesis reading ourselves into the biblical text, and then really what he was doing was using the text to try to scour it, to look for patterns that you're supposed to follow as far as learning how to hear the voice of God so that God can speak to you about your purpose. But in this particular case, God's not going to talk to you until you get your time management correct, and it, it's just a complete and utter mess. Now he correctly identified that Esther, in one way or another, represents you know you know Christ in his saving work. But he really didn't flesh that out. He didn't confront people with their sins. Didn't call them to repent. Didn't call them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it is this message of you need to hear God's voice, learn your purpose, and then apply yourself to it. That has replaced the uh, biblical teaching of Christian sanctification and bearing fruit in this of the spirit, which is love joy peace patience kindness gentleness self control, and then applying yourself to the good works that God has called you to in your vocations and again, I pointed this out in the sermon several times that uh, he was despising and belittling the work that God would call us to do at our job and somehow as if somehow it's getting in the way of your passion and your purpose and you just got to put up with it and you consider it a preparation time if you would until, you, until God finally moves you uh, to be able to do your purpose. That's not what scripture says at all. And this is the type of message that really feeds into our inherent narcissism That comes, that exists as a result of our sinful nature. So, yeah, Rich Wilkerson, is it any wonder why he's uh, popular among certain celebrities? All right. We're at the end of another episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.